This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family and friends, it's good for us to be able to come uh, in community with each other in the best way that we can. Uh, we are still working really hard uh, to flatten this curve, as it were. We really want to make sure that we're safe, that we're wise, but also that we stay in community with each other. Listen, I don't think any of us would disagree with the statement that we are living in very difficult, uncertain, uh, and dark times. And when we think about this idea of living in the midst of darkness, the question is, um, where do we look for light? To whom do we look for light? What does it mean to actually walk in the light in the midst of things that are very dark and concerning? We were hoping uh, that we were hoping that maybe over this period of time, uh, that maybe you know the, the things that we're looking at happening in the country right now, maybe some of that would start to subside, and maybe we'd start to get into a better groove. Because to us, that's what light would look like. Uh, but that that hasn't happened. And so our big question right now is, how do we hold on to light when there is certain darkness around us? Listen, for some of us, darkness looks like the the, the passing of loved ones those that are sick right now, those of us that are just trying to stay healthy for the sake of other loved ones, kids, uh, grandparents, uh, spouses, what have you. And so again, we have to figure out what it means to hold on to light. Our passage today deals with that very subject. And uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that's used. And those of us who have been in church for a while may have heard it over and over again, Jesus claiming that I am the light. We are so used to saying things like Jesus is the light. But what does that mean? What does it actually mean when we use the word light? That metaphor is something that's used uh, not only within Christianity. It's a metaphor that's used uh, for every single religious system uh, that you can name. Every single tribe and tongue, every people group that's ever lived, they've always had these metaphors of light and darkness. And they've always meant some things very specific. Light is something that we're very, very familiar with. So I want you to be thinking through that. As we read through this passage in John 8, when we start looking through how Jesus describes himself as light, I want you to be answering this question. Am I walking in light or am I walking in darkness? Am I walking in knowledge or am I walking in fear? Am I walking in a way where I don't shrink back from loving God well and loving my neighbor well? Or is my mind and my heart consumed with a form of darkness that is in no way aligned with where God's heart is? That's gonna be where we dig in. And so as we go into this text, be thinking about light and darkness. And we'll walk through that more specifically after we're done. So let's read this passage together. John chapter eight, verses 12 through 20. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I 
came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one sees them because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I learned a lot about light when I lived for three years in Alaska. Of course, we've all been, you know, we've all been here on earth. We've all had sunlight upon us. We know the value of the sun and the beauty of the sun, and we enjoy it when the winter ends and we can go out in the summer and we enjoy tanning and all these wonderful things that light brings. But I had a special appreciation for light while living in Alaska. Uh, Those of you who have either lived there, visited there, or even read about it, you know that that's a a part of the world where uh, because of the angle of inclination and because of the way that the earth is kind of tilted, you can, in the winter months, you're so far away from the sun and you're so far away from the sun's light that there are times in the winter where you have little to no sunlight. As a matter of fact, uh, on the longest day uh, in, during the winter, I remember it being about 23 hours of darkness and about one hour of light. And that light was more like dusk or like sundown. And so imagine, I remember seeing uh, just nothing but darkness all day long. It's three in the afternoon, pitch black. Five in the evening, pitch black. Uh, Ten in the morning, pitch black. It's just dark, dark, dark. And what you may not know is uh, for for those who have been born and raised there, for those who live there for any appreciable period of time, they start to struggle with real emotional issues and psychological issues. As a matter of fact, uh, in Alaska, uh, you have the highest suicide rates per capita in the country. And psychologists have attributed, uh, attributed that to something called seasonal affective disorder. Some people call it sad disease. That se- during that season, there's a lack of light. And what some uh, scientists have said is it's very possible that many of the hormones that are, uh, that are created and some of the things that happen, there may be an increase of melatonin uh, that causes uh, people to be more sleepy, people to be more drowsy. People have even said that now with the, as we are being quarantined, there are folks who are kind of making jokes on social media and saying, how many of y'all feel like you want to take a nap all the time, right? Because we're so limited from the sun's light that you start to get more uh, tired and you start to want to sleep more often. We also know that uh, for those who have limited serotonin levels and limited access to vitamin D, their moods start to change. Y'all, if nothing else, God is showing us how desperately we are in need of light. We actually can't function well without light. Light has often been a metaphor for good. Darkness has been a metaphor Uh, for evil. And so when you look throughout the scriptures, whenever light is mentioned, light is used to uh, describe salvation. Uh, And and it makes sense. We have to understand that darkness that the Bible refers to, this is the darkness that characterized the world into which Jesus came. And I think that for all of us, 
If we just look at any degree of history, if we look at any amount, if we just go back through the years, we can see tons of examples of things that we would call darkness. And so there are three primary areas I want to focus on when we think about darkness. When you think about darkness, the first area is a lack of knowledge. There is a degree to which our thinking becomes dark or is already dark because of our foolishness, because of our ignorance, because of our superstition. Ultimately, wherever Christ is unknown is dark. Any place where we don't have the mind of God is a place where our thinking is dark. Regardless of how high our intellects may be, regardless of how educated we may be, regardless of how many initials we have after our name, regardless of the number of degrees that we have, if our mindset, if the way that we're thinking doesn't align with the heart and the mind of God, our mind is darkened and we are in darkness. The second aspect of darkness is uh, the, this moral dimension, uh, this place where we see uh, real evil, things that we would look at as uh, fearful, places where we say, I think there is certain danger there and I need to avoid it. It's interesting, children, uh, most children, when they're uh, young, they have a, a, a natural fear of the dark. They are, I remember when I was a kid, I did not like going into the basement. My parents would ask me to go grab something from the basement and I would be so afraid to go down there. And I was so convinced that there was something that was trying to get me in the basement. I'm already starting to get some flashbacks that might not be appropriate for this sermon. But I just know that there was this deep uh, knowledge, this deep awareness that something wasn't right about the dark. And and we see this played out in Scripture when we look at uh, things that we would call moral. When we look at things that we would call what does it mean to behave and function in the way that God has called us. You see that in scriptures. If you look at Proverbs 2.13, uh, this is a passage where uh, the, the, the author is talking about wisdom and says, uh, wisdom will keep us from those who abandon the right paths to walk in ways of darkness, right? There's this idea that darkness means kind of wrong walking, right? Wrong moral posture. Proverbs 4.19, but the way of the wicked is like the darkest gloom. They don't know what makes them stumble. John 3.19, when Jesus says people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So we see that when the Bible talks about darkness, there's definitely kind of the knowledge piece. What do I know? What I don't know? Maybe I innocently and sincerely believe a thing or think that I know a thing, but we've said many times, sincerity isn't the litmus test for truth. You can be sincerely wrong. And then we see these examples of these moral things, these uh, ways that loving darkness is a form of immorality, functioning in darkness is a form of immorality. We also see a very experiential way that that plays itself out. Uh, We see this, uh, this example of darkness is associated with misery, with bondage, with death. We see this in Isaiah 8.22. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction and they will be driven into thick darkness. Israel's slavery in Egypt is referred to as darkness. Paul talks about the slave chains of sin, referring to that as darkness. In Ephesians 6, 12, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And then Psalm 143, for the enemy has pursued me, crushing me to the ground, making me live in darkness like those long dead. So we see that uh, when the Bible talks about darkness, it's all it's very much talking about kind of the moral uh, ways in which we are out of sync with where God's heart and mind is and, and the ways in which we function in ways that we ought not. There's a real darkness there. Then we also see a third category of darkness. And this is the category that really comes from the judicial world. There is a sense in which darkness or judgment for those who are in darkness is itself called darkness. There's a degree to which the types of judgment for those who are in rebellion against God are cast into darkness. If you remember in Zephaniah 1, uh, when he is uh, prophesying about the great day of the Lord, this great day when, when the Messiah returns and real judgment happens, here's the way he describes it. That day is a day of wrath a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness. Here we see darkness being applied to actual real uh, punishment and judgment. Jesus used this phrase in the same way when he gave the parable of the wedding banquet, when the person who looks like they're an imposter shows up and they don't have the requisite attire in order to be there. And we learned, we actually preached this before, and we learned about how if you've been invited, you would have been given the right attire to be able to get there. So this person clearly either was given the right attire and chose to just show up out of order anyhow, because they wanted to rebel against what should have been normal. And so when Jesus tells this parable, this is what he says happened to the person who was an imposter or who was a rebel showing up at the wedding banquet. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see this language used again in 1 Samuel 2, 9. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness for a person does not prevail by his own strength. What we see is that darkness is truly a function of the way sin has perverted, affected, and infected our world. Every place that we see, anything that we would look to as darkness, whether it's the diseases of the world, the horrific uh, things that have happened to human beings, the, the horrific policies that have been passed in varying countries that have dehumanized and marginalized fellow image bearers, we have we are replete with examples of darkness all throughout the world. Darkness is here. And we need to remember that the world was not created in darkness. While everything was dark and null and, and without any real form, when God created the earth, he created the earth not to be dark. It was made dark by sin. And because of sin, mankind was cast out of the very presence of God. We see this in Genesis 1, we see creation. Genesis 2, we see this covenant uh, that God makes with Adam and Eve. This, some people call it this covenant of works. And then Genesis 3, 
we see that mankind sins and rebels. And what ended up being the consequence of that rebellion? We start to see things begin to break. We start to see real darkness come upon humankind. We see the the three primary relationships for which we were created, a relationship with God, right relationship with each other, and right relationship to creation. All three of those were broken. All three of those were darkened. We were desperately in need of light. By Genesis 4, we see the first song that gets created. It's created by one of the descendants of Adam, uh, Lamech. And Lamech writes this song basically uh, saying, kind of pointing out the fact that he has just done, done something, he's just done something wrong and horrible, and he writes a song about it. He says, I have killed a man who wounded me. That's the first song that gets written in this story. We get four chapters into creation, and darkness is already there. He's rejected uh, by, by, or he's not rejected, he's dejected by the fact that he realizes just how dark things have gotten. We see what happened with Cain and Abel. We see Cain uh, having a sacrifice that was rejected by God. And Cain gets angry that his brother's sacrifice has been accepted and darkness wins out and he kills his brother. Darkness is all over the world which is why Jesus coming into this world of darkness is so vitally important because when he comes, he declares himself to be the light. He declares himself to be the answer to all of the things that have been plaguing us in the darkness. So he comes on the scene and he says, he says uh, uh, kind of the second of seven I am sayings that we see Jesus do throughout uh, the gospel, right? He's got seven things he says, I'm the bread of life, He says, I'm the light of the world. He says, I'm the door. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I'm the resurrection. He says, I'm the way, truth, and the life. And he says, I am the true vine. These are all metaphors that are used that the original audience would have certainly understood. And hopefully, I think that we should be able to understand this one very clearly. Some of these other ones, contextually, we have to understand and do work to know why that would have mattered. Because for us now, some of these phrases may not mean the same thing. But you know one phrase that should mean the same no matter what time we live in, no matter what region of the earth we live in, is light. Because again, we all understand just how vitally important light is. If people, whenever you study biology, you learn how vital light is in order for plants to be able to have food light. But they, they actually use the light to create food for themselves through the process known as photosynthesis. We know how vitally important life is. We cannot function without light. And so when you see Jesus kind of saying, I am the one upon which you need to be dependent or you will not survive. That's the other reason why when you look at Jesus making these kinds of claims, these are claims that no man could ever make. Only God could make. See, the audience that's listening to Jesus talk, they know we don't talk about normal human beings this way. We would never talk about uh, anyone who isn't God this way. If anything, we don't have a problem with prophets coming because prophets will share the light and maybe point to the light. But you have the audacity to refer to yourself as the light. That's something that they would have never been able to accept outside of knowing the real purpose that Jesus had in coming. So when when Jesus says, I am, anytime he says, I am, he's making these formal claims of his own deity. In many ways, this connects us back to the scene that we see at the burning bush uh, when Moses said, who should I say sent me? And God, tell them, God said, tell them I am 
send you. Anytime we see those I am's, we're getting this picture of who Jesus is claiming to be, that he's more than just a really good man, that he's more than just being a really good prophet. He's saying, I am God in the flesh, come to rescue you, come to cast you out of the darkness in which you have found yourself. And so we see Jesus being this divine light, bringing salvation, not a light, but the light. We see John 1, 9. If you remember, John the Baptist had said that the true light was coming. And so now we see Jesus truly coming on the scene to say, you guys may not have even realized just how dark things were. You don't realize how you have been functioning in real darkness. But whether you see it or not, light doesn't really care about what's hidden. Light comes in and it exposes. And Jesus comes on the scene to do just that. By way of understanding the context here, we need to know what's happening now when Jesus is here. We know that Jesus has been here for the Passover. He's been celebrating, uh, been joining the celebration of these various festivals that are associated with Passover. He just finished the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. And so they've just kind of walked through that. Now, one thing that you might not know is during those feasts, they would often have uh, things well lit. This is one of the most illuminated festivals around. As a matter of fact, we know that part of the festival here was uh, a smaller festival known as the Festival of Lights. And so this was a time where the first night of the feast, it was huge. People, there were, uh, you had four candelabras with four golden bowls in each one. And those bowls had full, they were full of oil. And so when they were light, they were meant to last for a really long time. Imagine the ceremonies, uh, uh, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. And you've got kind of what we know to be the eternal flame, where they had their version of that. And it would just, they would have it lit. Uh, some scholars tell us that it was so bright that it would illuminate the entire temple and even illuminate a huge part of the city. And so you've got this long festival going on and Jesus waits for that time. They're in the temple now. By this point, a lot of those candles have started to dim. <clears throat> a lot of the oil has already been burned away. And so the temple is dim. The city has dimmed. They all know that it used to be well lit. Now it isn't. Now Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, in the same way that you're looking at just how dark everything got, I am the light of the world. In the same way that that light has gone out, this is a light that will never go out. Jesus is very intentional about the language that he uses here. And because this is how we know he was intentional. And this is how we know that it landed the way he wanted it to. Because look at how the religious leaders responded to it. They were threatened. They began to plot to take his life. They didn't believe him or they didn't want to believe him. You see, without seeing Jesus as the true light, every other light can only be temporary and dying. Even the lights that we create for ourselves, I think that uh, we may not under have the right language for certain things, but we know that things aren't the way they should be. We're aware that things are functioning in ways that should not be. And so we come up with our own ways to try to add light anywhere that we can. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just unsustainable because we're human and we're broken. And we also have our own darkness to battle with. And so no matter what we do, no matter how many candelabras we put up, no matter how many lamps we have, the bulb in this lamp is going to die one day. We cannot create enough bulbs to create enough light to cast out eternal darkness. We can't do it. And so Jesus comes on the scene to say, I am actually that light. And they become threatened. 
Now, this should be a similar picture that we see when we look at the story in Exodus 1321. If you remember the pillar of fire and how the, the ways in which they had to uh, follow the pillar of fire when it was going by night and follow that cloud of fire by day and rest in the cloud when they were waiting to get their next instructions. This is the picture that we see of following Jesus and following the light. We only benefit from the light if we believe it and follow it. We only see real benefit there. They, the, the Israelites then, they trusted the light to lead them. They found protection under its shadow. So in following Jesus, he leads us from our own confusion, our own superstitions, our own fears, our own curse of death. So what does it mean then to follow him? Well, the first thing is to trust him. Sometimes we have to trust even without seeing. We may not be able to know fully, but we trust him. If he says, I am the light, then you can trust that I'm going to illuminate every path, every step that you have to take. I'm going to illuminate that for you. I may not illuminate the entire path for you. You're going to have to trust me. The Israelites, when they were following the cloud, they didn't see what the next seven steps would be, but they might be able to see the next step. And part of following Jesus, even now, we don't know what is going to come in the midst of this pandemic. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out. We would love that. We would love for everything to be illuminated perfectly. But the nature of darkness is such that light shines and it can cast a huge amount of light in an area. You may not be able to cast it all out yet. So we have to trust the one who holds the flashlight. We need to trust the one who indeed is the light because they're going to show us the way out. So we have to trust them. The other thing that, that uh, we were supposed to do is not just trust, but follow the way a disciple would follow. They had to trust that that light was truly from God, and then they had to follow wherever that light went. And see, that's part of what we're called to be as believers, as followers of Jesus. It's not enough to say, I know about the light. It's not even enough to say, I can point you to where the light is. If I'm not following the light, I'm still in darkness. It's not enough to just claim that I believe in Jesus. It's not enough to tell people that I can quote tons of scripture about Jesus. In the midst of a pandemic like this, this becomes the real telltale sign of how much we really are willing to follow Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, listen, some of us are wired to spend a lot of time um, in really dark places. <clears throat> some of us are wired that whenever things are really sad, really scary, really uncertain. All, all we do is just focus on just how horrible it is and how bad it may be. And we don't really know where to go from there. We don't really know how to actually move. We're not saying that the mourning and the concern shouldn't be there, but we're almost trapped there because we don't know where real light is. We don't know where real hope is. So it's like we can say the truth about how bad a thing is while still hoping in the one who promises to restore and make all things new. So that means that sometimes trying to bring light into a dark situation, it might not mean that I'm going to be able to know why. I might not be able to give all the explanations as to why bad things are happening. But the one thing I can do is hold on to the fact that because I know the light, because the light has come, I trust that the light will always be coming and is coming eventually to restore this, to make this right. And so I long for that and I have hope in that. Now, for some, for, for others, we may struggle with just having to mourn with anyone. 
For some of us, we're like, listen, I've got hope. I'm trusting in Jesus. I don't have time to listen to people who are really downtrodden and really concerned and really worried. Well, again, that, that is also not one. If we are walking in the light with Jesus, that means we're walking with the same heart of Jesus. And what we know the heart of God is, what he tells us to do is to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to mourn with those who are mourning. And so if I have created a form of rejoicing that precludes me from mourning with others, I'm walking in darkness as well. And so we need to get to a place where we can do both. Lord, give me enough of your light so that I can see how to be able to bring hope even in the midst of genuine, legitimate mourning and suffering. And Lord, give me enough of your light so that I can see that even in the midst of certain hope and certain joy, that I can still stop and mourn with those who are mourning. This is what it means to follow Jesus. I believe this is what it means when he tells us to take up our cross and follow him daily. There's definitely an individual piece for sure. I need to make sure that there's not genuine sin in my own heart, thinking that's wrong, behaving that's wrong, feeling that's wrong, things that are out of sync with where God's heart is. But also, how does that affect my ability to love my neighbor? How does that affect my ability to love my community? How does it affect my ability to care, not only what's happening with me individually, but what's happening systemically in the world in which I find myself? You know, when you look at the word follow, the Greek word describes a soldier that's following their commander. One uh, uh, theologian put it this way, to follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior and to submit ourselves in every matter of doctrine and practice. You see, what's interesting is so many people profess to believe in Jesus without having this commitment. You see, when we talk about following the light, it's not, again, it's not enough to say we know about it. There are many, there are many folks who may mean well and say, absolutely, I believe in Jesus, but there's no real commitment to truly follow him. And part of that is because we've marketed Jesus as someone who gives us what we want without any sense of surrender or any sense of genuinely following him. This is what I think Paul meant when he said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is why when Jesus says here in chapter eight, he says, whoever uh, follows me will not walk in darkness. And when you look at uh, the, the, the latter verses, 8, 13 through 20, we will walk through each part of this because we touched a little bit on this a, a few weeks ago. Um, but when you see the way that they respond, read it quickly. When you see the way the Pharisees responded, because we said this already, it's not enough to just know who Jesus is. We also need to answer the question, what do I do with his claims? Who is Jesus? What do I do with his claims, right? So he made this claim, I'm Jesus and I'm the light of the world. What do they do with that claim? Well, the Pharisees said to him, well, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. They're hearkening back to a few chapters earlier when Jesus actually made the statement. Hey, if I was testifying about myself alone, my testimony would be invalid. But it's not just my testimony. It's the father's as well, right? Well, they're, they're kind of quoting his words back to him. Well, you're testifying about yourself now. That testimony is invalid. And Jesus responds, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. This is very, very indicting of these Jewish leaders. 
Because you see, these Jewish leaders have been going to the temple. Uh, Jewish leaders for centuries have been going to the temple. They've been celebrating these things. They have, they have fancied themselves as having a special connection to God, special knowledge about God. They understood how to worship God. They understood how to lead others into learning about God. So for Jesus to say, listen, um, I, you're right. My testimony alone would not matter except for my father also testifies of me. And you don't even know the father because you don't know me. This, again, is a very exclusive claim. This is saying that it isn't enough to just say, well, I believe in God and I know about God and I care about God. Jesus says, you don't even see who God is if you don't really see me because I'm from him and I am him. We are in this place now where we have to kind of ask this question, how is it even possible then for these Pharisees who have had close proximity to the things of God and yet not know him? How is it possible for us to have close proximity to the things we call godly? We have close proximity to scripture and we quote it. We have close proximity to uh, worship songs and we sing them. We have close proximity to, to listening to sermons and we'll repost them. How is it possible then for us to know those things, to see those things and still not know who God is? Well, these Pharisees are a great example of this. And I think part of the reason why it's easy <clears throat> to be in darkness and be comfortable and not be aware that you're even in darkness, I think it's much like the way we look at our eyes. The way our eyes are designed to function when things are well lit and when things are dark. Very interesting. The eye is an incredible piece of human ingenuity, uh, God's ingenuity, but the fact that it's manifested within human existence is incredible. Because when you think about uh, the way that your eyes move and change and the way they dilate, the way the conical lenses function and, and come together, I just love nerding out on this. When you think about what your eyes do, when it's well lit, your eyes adjust and they can see really well. Now, when we need light in order to be able to see things, but at nighttime, our vision is restricted. When we stay in the darkness long enough, our eyes adjust. When we stay in darkness long enough, we begin to have a little bit of increased visual acuity. I'm able to see, I can make out a shape that maybe I didn't before. I stay in the darkness long enough and I become comfortable with seeing in the dark. Spiritually, we can stay in places where our mind is not enlightened. Our hearts are not truly transformed. And we might have close proximity to God, but we stay in a place of darkness and we have night vision. And so we are comfortable because we can see well enough at night. It's still not the same as light. And God is saying, I created you for you to see in the daytime. I created you to function in the daytime. This metaphor for what it means to walk right with him, to follow him, to have his heart, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. You see, these folks here, they were functioning in a way that we would function when we're, in, in the, when we're kind of living that nightlife. See, that nightlife says, I'm function, functioning my own way, and I've created my own version of night vision goggles. So now I've created a way to manage my sin well enough so that I can function. I'm highly functional in, in the darkness. The problem is, what happens when you have been using night vision goggles, and all of a sudden, the sun comes out. If you've ever seen people using night vision goggles, if you've ever had them, 
your eyes will all automatically kind of go. It, it, it'll it'll have such a, a negative impact on your eyes. It can almost hurt your vision because it's so overwhelming, right? And so you almost have this defensive reaction when the light comes because you're so accustomed to functioning at night. That's actually what our heart does when Jesus comes and brings us light. You see, we love saying Jesus is the light because it's supposed to be this great therapeutic thing and we feel better. But you do realize that light also exposes. You see, yes, light helps us to avoid bad things and it helps us to watch out for potential damaging uh, traps. It helps us to figure out which obstacles are to be avoided or even how to transcend set obstacles. But it also reveals real damaging sinful patterns in our hearts and in our minds. And what happens when your own sinful ways of thinking or your sinful ways of functioning get exposed? We've said this many times. Exposure feels like assault, so we get defensive. And see, that's what these Pharisees do. When Jesus, we see this throughout this gospel, when he begins to call them out on all the ways that they do not follow God, Instead of allowing the light to expose and then they repent and begin to follow the light in the right direction, they begin to judge him based on very superficial means. Well, who is your daddy anyway? Some people think that they may have been uh, throwing a shot at him because of his questionable parentage with Joseph and all the rumors that were surrounding how his mother really got pregnant. And so they did that thing where they're like, let me just deflect and bring misdirection because I don't want to deal with my own sin. That's what it looks like to be in darkness. When when I say that I love God and then light begins to expose areas of my heart that demonstrate that I may not love him enough in these areas and I begin to push back and I begin to get defensive. Why? Because I prefer to be nocturnal. I don't want to walk in the light. We need day vision to see darkness for what it is. We need the light of Jesus to see darkness for what it is. Reminded of a story that many of us have heard. It's a story of a uh, one evening where there was a naval admiral that was uh, commanding a ship through the waters at night. And during that time, uh, they had come into contact with uh, another light in the distance. So they saw that it was uh, likely another ship. And this admiral uh, uh, told his radio operator to let the ship on the other side know that they need to move about 10 degrees. And when they heard the response back, he was shocked because the response, the response said, no, you're going to need to move 10 degrees. And this went back and forth about two or three times. And at one point, the admiral got so frustrated and so incensed and his pride was hit hugely. And he grabs the radio out of the operator's hand and says, do you know who you are talking to? You're talking to an admiral in the United States Navy. Now, I will t- ask you one more time, move your route 10 degrees. And they waited for a little bit. And then the response coming on the other end, very measured, very tempered, said, sir, do you realize that you're talking to the lighthouse? You're going to need to move 10 degrees. You see what light does is it, it exposes us and it shows us that we're not the lighthouse. We don't get to dictate where things go. We don't get to dictate where we should go. The lighthouse shows us. The interesting thing about in nature, the way the sun works, the sun gives us what we need. 
The sun gives us what we need to survive. It gives us what we need to thrive. And here's what's interesting. We get what we need from the sun, but it is by the light of the sun that we see everything else. And that is the same way with Jesus. We get what we need from him for sure. We get salvation. We get the ability to be changed. We get transformation. But it is also by his very light that we see the rest of the world. It is by his light that we function in the world. It's by his light that we love others. It's by his light that we begin to battle sin. We need the light to cast out the darkness. A question is, are you walking in darkness today? God's will is that we would choose light and not darkness. His will is for us to do the deeds of light and not these deeds of darkness. His will is that we live as daytime people and not nocturnal people. We just came out of this Easter season and we are reminded that the life, the death, the the resurrection of Jesus has completely rescued us from this dominion of darkness because he's brought this kingdom of light. Are you walking in darkness? Jesus tells us, I am the light of the world. Is he your light? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that you didn't wait for us to even acknowledge just how dark things were before you brought your light into the world. You had to the plan to rescue us back all the way back when you promised uh, to, to send your Messiah, to send your son to come and crush the head of the serpent. All the way back in Genesis, we see this plan that you hatched to buy us back. Yes, darkness entered into the world, but your plan to buy us back and to illuminate our hearts and our minds and completely change us and transform us to live in your light, to live in your love. God, we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would give us a deep conviction about areas in our heart where we are still living in darkness. We're still living this nocturnal life when you've called us into the day. You've called us into the light. God, I pray that when there are areas in our mind where we have uh, thinking that is dark, will you change that? If our thinking has been challenged, will you allow us to, to, to humble ourselves so that we can actually think the thoughts that you have already thought and not our own and determine if we agree with yours? God, will you give us your heart so that the things that we do, the ways that we uh, make out our own morality, God, don't allow us to craft our own morality. God, give us your heart. Give us your morality, what it means to genuinely love each other. Even in the midst of this pandemic, Father, we need your light because there is so much darkness right now. God, we are thankful that even though our own sin and our own brokenness deserves real judgment, You sent Jesus to die so that we no longer have to deal with condemnation. We don't have to deal with that judgment again. You have delivered us from every form of darkness. So God, can we live in that? Empower us to believe that. Empower us to be able to bring hope to those who are mourning and to mourn even with those who have hope. God, we pray that we can do this for your glory and not our own. We thank you for your light. Continue to cast out the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.